If you like to spend your free time reading up on transfer pricing, and let's be honest, who doesn't, you're sure to have come across the name of our first guest many times. An emerita professor of business and renowned author Dr. Lorraine Eden has been studying, teaching, researching, and writing about transfer pricing for, well, let's just say ever. Or as long as a little league doubleheader, whichever one of those is longer. Is it a hobby or a job? We don't know. One of her first books, Multinationals and Transfer Pricing, much like herself, her book titles are no nonsense, was published in 1985 and then backed by popular demand in 2017. This year, she published The Economics of Transfer Pricing, 2019, Her in her... And her latest book, Research Methods in International Business, will debut in 2020. Spoiler alert, her 10th book, tentatively titled Principles and Transfer Pricing, is already in the works. A Canadian native and Fulbright scholar, Dr. Eden has taught undergraduate master's and doctoral courses at Texas A&M University. She's led students through the intricate world of international business and multinational enterprises and created a graduate seminar solely devoted to transfer pricing. Any takers in this room? Okay. Incidentally, nearly 350 graduate students signed on for that course, more than a third of whom are now transfer pricing professionals. Not a bad transfer pricing legacy, right? But wait, there's more. When she's not writing books or chipping away at a syllabus, Dr. Eden is forming opinions and lots of them. And she shares them in her articles, which appear in scholarly publications like the Academy of Management Journal and the Canadian Journal of Economics and also on authoritative tax websites like MNE Tax. In response to the lately overwhelming criticism swirling around the arm's length principle, Dr. Eden declared her opinion in an October 11th edition of Bloomberg Tax, the arm's length standard is not the problem. Don't you love a woman who doesn't make you read between the lines? Today, you'll hear why Dr. Eden still believes the standard has a future as the foundation of transfer pricing. And get ready to be swayed. I know married couples who don't stand up for each other with the kind of passion Dr. Eden has shown the arm's length principle in her article. Whether you love the arm's length standard, you hate the arm's length standard, or maybe you just haven't formed an opinion yet, you'll be impressed by her points and it will give you something to think about on your free time between all of those transfer pricing reads. With that, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. not much that's certain in life except death and well, you know. But with the U.S. Treasury and IRS now releasing what they're calling final regulations for the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax, or BEAT as it is better known, everyone's hoping that this is, well, it. Enacted as part of the 2017 U.S. tax reform, the BEAT imposes a minimum tax on certain deductible payments made by U.S. taxpayers to related parties. There's good and bad news, so let's do what all sane people do and start with the bad. The new regulations do not include exemptions for income payments under subpart F, the global intangible low taxed income, otherwise known as everyone's least favorite buzzkill sounding acronym GUILTY, or passive foreign investment company rules or PFIC rules as their better known. There's also no general rule allowing for netting payments, nor any exemptions for revenue sharing arrangements. Phew, <laughs> glad that's over with. Now to the good news. See, isn't that better than the other way around? The regs are generally consistent with the general approach of the IRS's initial proposal unveiling beat in 2018, and the remaining changes are mostly music to multinational ears. In short, there's no mention of blending the 5% rate between fiscal year starting in calendar year 2018, so it looks like they may just let you skip paying that first increase 5% tax if you were worried before, but always good to be sure. <laughs> there also are a number of final regulations revolving around insulating base erosion payments made by taxpayers to a foreign-related person in non-recognized transactions. In English, that means this should make everything from transferring stock to opening up shop overseas easier and lighter on wallets back home. In speaking of making things easier, lift your champagne glasses, everyone. The latest EU effort to make country-by-country country reporting public failed in a late November vote of the EU Competitiveness Council. And get this, the dissenting vote that carried at the end of the day contended the EU Competitiveness Council wasn't even the appropriate council configuration for adopting such a proposal. It actually should have been approved in the Economic and Financial Affairs Council, or ECOFIN, since income information disclosure measures must be 
based on Article 115 TFEU, not EU single market law, at least when pertaining to tax. Yeah, geez, you guys, that one's down the hall to the left. Get it right. Among the nitpicking dissenters are Cyprus, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Ireland, Latvia, Luxembourg, Malta, Slovenia, and Sweden. The opposing minority made up of Belgium, Denmark, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, and Spain pushed back, albeit to no avail, that none of this mattered since the legislation has to do with transparency, not taxation. And you might want to swallow that champagne fast because during the debates, there remained wide consensus among all countries that there should be increased transparency among multinationals to ensure a fair and equitable tax system based on growth. Yeah, down the hatch, everyone. And for the latest in countries updating their definitions of permanent establishments and releasing new guidance thereabouts, we turn to Colombia. In the new government decree 1973 issued at the end of October, a permanent establishment in Colombia is defined as a fixed place of business located in the country through which a foreign entity without residence in Colombia performs all or part of the group's activities. This includes branches of foreign companies, agencies, offices, factories, workshops, and any points of extraction or exploitation of natural resources such as mineral mines or oil and gas wells. In other words, if you're part of a multinational group and making money somehow, some way in Colombia, Decree 1973 is here to find somehow, some way to make you pay for it. Don't have a branch or permanent establishment in Colombia? Colombian tax law has a tier system that will foot someone with the bill. But along with these fancy new definitions and rules, the decree also establishes that MNEs must pay tax on income and even occasional earnings in Colombia, whether or not they received gains from branches or permanent establishments within the country. Say, that sounds a bit like a lot of the unilateral digital service taxes we've seen coming across Europe lately, and a lot like countries that are not really feeling the way MNEs and home countries' tax plans cling so tightly to brick-and-mortar definitions of permanent establishments to keep their taxable income low. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Here we go. Mimi, I will hand things off to you. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome to everybody to our first roundtable here in, uh, at the beautiful Phoenician in Arizona. And we really want to say thank you for coming. Um, we're really excited uh, to be able to host all of you, our wonderful customers. And also, we want to say thank you to our two guest speakers. We're really excited to have both of you here. So let's get started. All right. Dr. Lorraine Eden is here to my left, and she is a name I have known for quite some time. I've never met her until now, and we're very, very excited to have her here. Um, but before we get started, you know, Lorraine, can we get to know a little bit more about you? I, I'd actually love to understand how did transfer pricing, um, how did you start to focus on transfer pricing? How did this become your career? Well, let me say first, uh, Mimi and Matthew, thank you for the invitation. Delighted to be here and get a chance to. It's my first time on the Fiona show. This is <laughs> really exciting. And so I fell into transfer pricing. Uh, I think most people fell into transfer pricing. They started somewhere else and kind of landed here. Uh, what happened in my case was I was looking for a dissertation topic and um, the person I thought was going to chair my dissertation said, 
a very famous public finance economist named Carl Schaup is coming for a year. I was at Dalhousie University. I'm a Canadian, so I was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he said, he's coming for a year, and I think he should chair your dissertation. So he wrote to Carl, and in those days everybody wrote letters, and uh, got a letter back saying Carl had been appointed to the Committee of Eminent Persons at the United Nations. And he would take on one last PhD student if that student wrote on transfer, transfer pricing. <laughs> did I have any idea what it was? No. Did I say yes? I did. And so that started me down the rabbit hole into transfer pricing, and I've been there ever since. Wow. And and, and so you kept, you kept in the transfer pricing space. What did you find so interesting about it? I think I've always kind of liked it because I think it's about puzzles. Mm. Um, you're presented with a set of facts and circumstances, and every one of them is unique. And I'm an economist by training, and so I understand basic economic principles, and you want to apply those basic economic principles to try and understand that fact pattern and to recommend a way to set those prices. And so there are economists who do this, there are lawyers who do this, there are accountants who do this, there are management faculty who do this, and all of us have a little bit of insight into sort of the elephant, right, which is how firms set prices inside between related parties. Well, I, I, I love that puzzle analogy. I agree mm -hmm. with that. I feel like there's such a creative aspect to transfer pricing. Mm -hmm. I agree. And so if, if, if you, if you like that angle, if you, if you like the fact that there's no one right answer, transfer pricing becomes very appealing. You have to live with that ambiguity. Yeah. Because there is no really one true right answer. And in the real world, it's more complicated and there's so many different facts and circumstances. But I do think if you can puzzle through using your basic understanding of economics and the law, you can get to a good answer. Right. Can, can I tell you, before I got into transfer pricing, and I, I, I studied, I, well, no, I, I studied economics in school, uh -huh. and I literally did not know what I was going to do with that degree, right? <laughs> I had no idea, no clue. <clears throat> but I remember when I was doing, you know, a transfer pricing study, I, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I could see the graph formulating in my head is supply and demand. I'm like, this is the fundamental yeah. basics of economics. Absolutely. It was phenomenal. And that's, uh, I think that was like one of those aha moments mm -hmm. in my career where I thought, wow, education actually was very important. <laughs> I've, I've taught, I think, about 350 graduate students, master's and PhD students, transfer pricing now. And what's really fun is when they have that aha moment. Right. The light comes on and they kind of get it and they say, wow, this is fun. Such a cool career. Right, right. And Matthew, cutting in from our Terrytown offices for a moment to ask Fiona a question. This may be unnecessary, but let's get a quick review. Fiona, what is the definition of the arm's length standard? The original definition of the arm's length standard as it applies in the United States can be found in Section 482 to one of the transfer pricing regulations. A control transaction meets the arm's length standard if the results of the transaction are consistent with the results that would have been realized if uncontrolled taxpayers had engaged in the same transaction under the same circumstances, the arm's length result. It is used to determine the true taxable income of a controlled taxpayer. Thank you, Fiona, and we return to Mimi and Lorraine in Scottsdale. So with that being said, let's get into our topic. And, and our topic is around the arm's length standard. And I think you, you recently wrote an article about this. And, you you know, I didn't even know that it's the 85th anniversary of right. the arm's length standard. 1935, so it'll be 85 years in 2020. That's wow. A, that's the Section 482. Yep. Right, the original rules on setting up the arm's length standard. And, and, so, and so what was the purpose of the arm's length standard? I think that... Or what is, I should say. It, it, if you think about the situation, we got a corporate income tax in the United States in, I think, uh, 1917. It was to raise revenues in World War I, right? And so basically everybody started adopting corporate income taxes. And if you were a domestic firm in the United States, you paid a corporate income tax on your profits, and that was done. But if you had a subsidiary somewhere else, and already, even in the end of the 1800s, there were multinational enterprises. Think about Singer, for example, as a British multinational mm -hmm. coming mm -hmm. to the United States, or the British Tobacco Company. 
So I could then be in two places. I could have a subsidiary in England, and I could have a subsidiary in the United States. And that gave me the opportunity to arbitrage the difference in the tax rates between them. And that's something a domestic firm didn't get. So basically, if you were multinational, you had opportunities that were not available to domestic firms. And the way the arm's length standard is written is to say you need to be on a level playing field. So the idea behind it was multinationals should not be able to profit relative to a domestic firm. Domestic firms have to price inside. We need to take away the arbitrage opportunities for multinationals. And so how many countries today subscribe to this idea of the arm's length standard? This year, I think it's 124, 125 countries are on. The inclusive framework, you know, the changes that are going on with the OECD on the digital economy, has 135 members. So I'm not sure if the number really shouldn't be 135. Right. I think all members right. of the inclusive framework have signed on in some way, shape, or form to the arm's length standard. Like standard. Yeah, at least a minimum standard yes. there, right? Mm -hmm. And so in your article, you, you talk about um, this the, the idea of that, that the arm's length standard is actually in retreat. Mm -hmm. So why is that? Why, why do you think that perhaps there's this uh, mindset that people want to move away from the arm's length standard? Well, I think it all started um, basically after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008. Uh, so many things were thrown up in the air by firms going under and going bankrupt. Uh, governments needed more tax revenues, and they started to look around for more tax revenues. And they started thinking that multinationals were not paying their fair share of tax. And there were some NGOs who started doing reports. I think Christian Aid was one of the first ones, and Tax Justice Network was another. And they started surfacing stories about multinationals, um, big names we know, uh, Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, uh, most of them U.S. multinationals that were not paying taxes. And it is very clear they were taking advantage of a variety of opportunities to avoid paying tax. They were engaged in this these arbitrage opportunities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, there was a real perception that the arm's length standard wasn't doing its job. Mm -hmm. And that because it wasn't doing its job, uh, people even said someone wrote an article saying the arm's length standard is dead. Um, people either thought it was too hard to make it work or it didn't work. Hmm. And, you know, I feel like I, in the news, I feel like the concept of transfer pricing is somewhat villainized. I, absolutely. I think it, um, when, when I would teach my students, I would say the real problem is the term has become pejorative now. It's If you say you are a transfer pricing economist, everyone holds their nose and says, you know, what, do you, what are you doing this right. for? Why are you shifting profit offshore? Right. Why are you shifting? In other words, <laughs> they have conflagrated two things, the uh, the income shifting with the transfer pricing. Mm -hmm. Transfer prices have to be set. Firms have to price yes. transactions that move within them, and there's nothing nefarious about that. But it has, within the public, got conflagrated as the two things meaning the same thing, and they don't. So... In the article specifically, I know you, you talk about um, the fact that people think it's the arm's length, of, uh, arm's length standard should be abandoned because that's what's creating this misuse of or extensive income shifting, right? But I think... I think you you wrote in the article, you know, that the arm's length standard should actually be celebrated. That, in fact, after all these years, it still has its place. And I, I think this is your point here, that... It's not the arm's length standard that's the problem, it's something else. Yes, I call it a case of, you'll know the old expression, shooting the messenger, right? The king got a message saying something had happened and he shot the messenger. <laughs> the arm's length standard, I think transfer pricing has been the message. But the real problem behind it has been, frankly, the other expression I use is positions heal thyself. The real problem is that governments themselves have created a situation where firms can take advantage of these opportunities. And the BEPS project, really, the way I look at the BEPS project launched in 2013, is its position, Heal Thyself. They recognized that there were too many loopholes for manipulation. Right, so not a transfer pricing problem per se as opposed to an income tax design problem? Exactly. Um, if you think about the 
system, those of us who work in the tax arena, there's a set of rules, almost like a chess game, right? You, you think you have pieces on the board, so you have your king and your queen, and you have your pawns and your knights, and each of them has a role to play. The international tax rules for source and residence and says, you know, if it's this kind of a flow, it belongs here, and this kind belongs there. And under these circumstances, we do worldwide, and under these circumstances, we do territorial. So there's a whole set of rules of the game set up by the tax system, right? And out below that, almost a second tier down, I think of the arms and Lake standard as almost like the enforcer. It's the linchpin that makes this thing work. So for me, it's always been an income tax design. The problem is the rules at the top, which create these opportunities for shifting, and then transfer pricing gets manipulated. Fix the rules at the top, transfer pricing goes back to doing what it did, was ensuring that prices reflect resource allocation. And, and maybe we should give that a little bit of perspective, because if we think about even in the U.S. income tax rules, I mean, we're talking about books and books and oh, thousands, thousands and thousands of pages, of pages right? right? And many of those pages have loopholes. Yes. Well, I think all of those little specific <laughs> yeah, provisions, absolutely. There's very, there are very specific provisions. Like, you know, if the sun is setting at 6 p.m. And, and there's a dog howling in the night, then you can deduct your taxes associated with your golf club purchases. <laughs> You're right. They're very arcane. And so what's grown up is a whole group of people who's, Purpose in life is to read those rules and find those loopholes, loopholes mm -hmm. and, and exceptions and then take advantage of them. And the larger you are and the more resources you have, the easier, of course, that is to do. And so, I mean, what are what kind of solutions? I think you recommended a few solutions in your article. I mean, so so on a high level, what what type of solutions are there um, that could be that that could resolve this issue? Well, I think there's really kind of three, and my article recommends one of them, but doesn't think it's the, this day and age very practical. Okay. Um, if we were to revert to the system that was sort of in place at the end of World War II and through the 50s, where most governments taxed on a worldwide basis. Uh, so basically, they taxed not only the domestic income of the multinational, but the foreign source income of the multinational. In effect, then, if a few large home countries, the United States, England, for example, Japan, uh, now China, were to do this, they would create an umbrella under which everyone else would be able to set prices. And those incentives to manipulate really go away with a worldwide system and no deferral. That's, that's the first case. Unfortunately, the last major holdout on this was the United States. And the U.S. in the um, Tax Jobs um, Act that was just passed moved the U.S. to a territorial system of basically exempting foreign source income from tax. Now, it did add some provisions, uh, FDII, BEAT, guilty, mm -hmm. some things that actually claw back some of that foreign source income. A couple of those are likely to be illegal under WTO rules, and so I think huh. probably won't last. The FDII won't make it through WTO, I don't think. Um, but the, so the second one is in a world where most governments are taxing on a territorial basis, you need some ways to protect the base. And, uh, for example, not giving a uh, credit if you know the income is not going to be taxed somewhere else. And there are some things developing countries particularly can do. So that's the second method. Uh, the third method is move, throw the whole system out, throw the baby out with the bathwater, mm -hmm. and move to formulary apportionment. And there have always been people who wanted global formulary apportionment. I think the first article I ever read on this was written by a Canadian economist, Richard Bird, at the University of Toronto in 1986. So that's how long people have been writing about formulary apportionment and flipping. And in the United States, of course, we have it here at the state level, mm -hmm. where there's a compact of about 40 states, yep. and they share the corporate income tax. Matthew, cutting in from our Terrytown offices for a moment to ask Fiona another question. Fiona, we need another reminder. What is formulary apportionment? Under the current global system, multinational companies determine their profits separately in each jurisdiction in which they operate. Under formulary apportionment, a multinational corporation would allocate its profits across countries based on a calculation of its sales, payroll, and capital base in each jurisdiction. 
a company would pay U.S. corporate tax on the share of its worldwide income allocated to the United States. Thank you, Fiona. And we return to Mimi and Lorraine in Scottsdale. Um, anybody who studies that history of the U.S. states trying to pay, I you know, salt taxes, uh, <laughs> knows how even in a sub-federal level they can be manipulated, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if it's manipulated at a sub-federal level where you have a federal government, I never understood how anybody could think doing this at the worldwide level would be any better. It's by, by definition almost has to be worse. There's no cop at the top to make sure that the games aren't played. So on the third one on formulary apportionment, I always thought it was going to worsen the tax games, not make the games better. Interesting. So let's talk about that the first alternative really mm-hmm. quickly, right? You know, this idea of a simpler international tax system. And I know you you don't think it's likely, but what 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 would that look like in a little more detail? I think the key thing would you would really need four or five countries that were the the home the major home countries to multinationals. So if you think about where most multinationals are headquartered now, the U.S. has the I think still the single largest number. Uh, that would be England, Japan, uh, China would have the largest number of new ones. And if they say five countries could get together and say, we are willing to move back to taxing worldwide income, um, and preferably getting rid of deferral because that enables you to just keep the money offshore, I think that would solve most of the problem. What would happen is, I talk in the paper about if you tax on a worldwide basis, it's like an umbrella. And there's something that we call the first crack principle, which is that if you're where the multinational subsidiaries are located, you're the host country. If you get an umbrella over you from the residence country and they're willing to credit your taxes, where do you want to put your tax rate? You want to nestle it right under the umbrella because you know you're going to get a foreign tax credit for it. And so basically the tax becomes the residence country tax. So in effect, you could have five, say, countries with an agreed on, within a couple of points, range tax, and if they were willing to provide foreign tax credits up to that rate, that would take most of the problem away. Then the transfer price, frankly, would just simply go back to doing what it was always meant to do, which was a level playing field with domestic firms. But then I think you were saying that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act recently is going to have a big impact to the, basically, it's not going to allow for this sort of simplified tax system, right? Well, it's not only less simplified. Well, I think the new beat rules came down yesterday. Barbara, how many pages? 350 pages of beat rules? Those are for the um, final rules. There's also about another 150 pages, I think, of proposed rules. Right. Neither so of which I have. Each thought. one of these uh, has, uh, we're talking like maybe a thousand new pages yeah. of tax rules, just respect to related party transactions coming out of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Um, again, we can find, and uh, someone with the time can find the, the loopholes in those. And we know sure. the, you know, there's a lot of horse trading and setting up corporate income tax making because you know every legislator has to go back and talk to their constituencies about what taxes there. And as you said, at a certain particular time of the day, it triggers. Yep. <laughs> it triggers. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah. As long as the stars are aligned. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. What about 
about alternative to closing the loopholes? I mean, I think I think your article basically indicates that this is the OECD's uh, base risk and profit shifting action plan, right? At work. Yeah, then basically in two thousand. Well, if you, even if you go back earlier than that, you go back to I think the earliest is nineteen ninety eight. The OECD got worried about tax havens and what they call preferential tax regimes. And they really did have a process of trying to go through and name and shame havens. Problem is it really didn't work Mm -hmm. because they were willing to name and shame the little islands, right? But they weren't willing to name and shame their own problems at home. So, for example, things like the Dutch sandwich which enables you to funnel money and avoid paying withholding tax. Or Ireland, for example, which uh, the headquarters could be here or here, depending upon which rules you picked and played with. So what happened is uh, when that original project didn't work, in 2013, the OECD actually started the BEPS, Space Erosion and Profit Shifting. And as we know, there were 15 action items Most of those were designed to plug the loopholes in the system, one at a time. Hybrid arrangements, stamping out what you could declare as, remember, interest is a tax-deductible expense, equity is not. So shifting stuff from the equity basket into the interest Mm -hmm. basket Mm -hmm. enabled you to deduct it. So all of those rules were designed, or all those changes were designed to, in some sense, plug those loopholes without going back to a worldwide system. And I think uh, we don't know yet how successful they've been. Basically, they didn't really come into 2017. This is only 2019, two years, right? Right. And But the reports coming out are showing that developing countries are now starting to garner more tax revenues. It really does look like maybe this is going to work if we just give it sufficient time. Right. And and are there any additional steps that you think um, need to be considered to make sure that this continues to work? Well, the U.S. kept the check-the-box regulations, which, uh, you know, I, I was sitting at a United Nations meeting once on tax. This is about five years ago. And they were all talking about the most egregious um, arbitrage opportunity. In other words, what was the worst? thing uh, in terms of the rules that led to all of this abusive behavior. And it was check the box. Check the box allows a a multinational that's a U.S. multinational to choose uh, like a Janus face. On one face, you're a branch, and on the other face, you're a subsidiary, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can double dip and take advantage of the rules of the sub where the sub is, and you can take advantage of the branch where the branch is, and you just roll up and disappear if you're a branch. So I thought that was really kind of an eye-opener, that 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 particular thing was um, considered by most European countries to be the most egregious violation was a U.S. rule on here. The um, Let me come back to the your other point of this, what's left, Mimi? Yes. Well, the big thing going on right now, of course, is there were 15 action items. The first one on the list was the last one to be dealt with, and that's taxing the digital economy. And here we are really talking what launched this, and I'm sure those of you reading the papers know about the tit-for-tat that is going on between the U.S. and France on the digital services tax, right? Mm -hmm. And many countries are introducing digital taxes. Well, as like a unilateral measure to try to deal with the digital economy tax, right? Exactly. And then it's almost like they're, 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 they're just putting the cart before the horse because they just, they don't want to miss out on this well, race see the, to tax the digital if, economy. If you look at the statistics on the size of firms, it's unbelievable how and billions of revenue billions of dollars of revenue annually mm-hmm. that are received by what is it? It's Alphabet, Amazon, um Facebook. Uh, Facebook, yep. to sort of, a, there's AAA, yep. sort of F on the list of Microsoft, uh, the top five, all American. So frankly, in some sense, it's like the golden goose here. And other countries are looking at it saying, U.S., if you're not going to tax them, then we want to. And so that it is very much, I think, a European, they're not European multinationals, they're American multinationals. And there really is a, we think you're making all these profits off us and you need to pay us tax. Right. And, and the, the third alternative here, which, which I know you don't like and you don't think it really works is formulary apportionment. And yet, you know, 
different countries are now gathering all this information, like the country by country reporting, mm-hmm. the quantitative data mm-hmm. to be able to do this sort of um, analytics and, and perhaps that could lead to a formulary apportionment world? Uh, the answer is absolutely. Uh, so part of what's happened, I think, is is a couple of things that make formulary apportionment more likely. Number one is this perception about these multinationals making so much income and not paying tax. That's number one. And number two is we now, one of the BEPS action items led to country-by-country country reporting. My analogy for that is the octopus. And let me explain it a little bit to you. An octopus has many arms, right? The way transfer pricing and taxes are paid is a dual. If, if I'm an, um, let me say, if I'm a French tax authority and it is auditing the multinationals in France, it looks at the related party transactions between the French entity and whatever the party is that's trading. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking at one tentacle of the op- octopus. They don't tend to say, give me your whole global value chain. I want everything about this multinational. It's a focus on the related party transactions along one tentacle. Well, think what uh, C by CR does, country by country reporting. All of a sudden, every multinational is now having to file a master file and local files. Master file is the global value chain for the whole entity. The local file is all at the individual subsidiary level. Right now, that information is private, and it is going government to government, and the question is whether you are willing to exchange or not exchange with other countries. But the advantage is it gives tax authorities a big window into the multinational enterprise and an opportunity to do that. Right. So that's the second. The third piece is the second one is the one you also alluded to, which is big data. Mm-hmm. There is much more data out there now than there has been before, and computers are much faster, and so there is the opportunity, I think, to do some of that. I think as this comes out, you will see governments saying, I have 5% of the labor force here, and I have 10% of the capital stock, and I have 50% of the sales. Why aren't you paying me more, right. more tax? Right. Yeah. So, so formulary apportionment, you know, I think you were saying that labor is one example of why formulary apportionment potentially doesn't work. Could you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I think one of the reasons to tax labor was the perception that it wasn't mobile. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you tax something mobile, it leaves, <laughs> right? So uh, taxing labor was a perception that people tended to stay where their, where their jobs were. The problem with the digitalization of the economy is there's less and less labor there. That's the first problem. So what do you do if it's just robots, right? Or it's artificial intelligence over some line. Second piece is, what do you do? Just count bodies? Do you count wages and salaries? What about fringe benefits? Uh, You know, what do you put in when you're trying to figure out labor costs here? So there seems to me there's as many loopholes with labor. Mm -hmm. And matter of fact, if you think about that's what the states learned. Uh, At the sub-federal level in the United States, most of these states have moved away from taxing labor. They don't tax capital. All they tax is sales. Yep. And, you know, to the labor point, I was just thinking about it when, when I was reading your article and thinking, well, so if labor were to be a factor in the calculation of the tax, all of a sudden, if you just add five people automatically, yes, you have to pay that much more tax. Absolutely. And so think about it this way. If, suppose we did do labor and we're, we were doing, I don't know, Texas and Michigan. And uh, there is no, well, and we need, we need a place with a corporate income tax. So two states with, with tax rates. And the tax rate is higher in state B than state A. What do I do if we use labor? I just put five more people over in the low-tax state so that I can shift it to the low-tax state. Even though all the value is created by, let's say, you know, the uh, the two people in uh, the high-tax state. That's right. right. And so trying to figure out where the value is created, just simply counting people is, you know, what was the old labor fallacy of labor? from the 1600s that Adam Smith went after in the Wealth of Nations. So, I mean, it really is that labor fallacy. That's interesting. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it it sounds like the entire international tax system 
need some edit, but really the arm's length principle is still very valid and relevant. Uh, I, I still see if the games, if the original BEPS works that's been happening over the last few years, take, take care of the most egregious loopholes in the system then the arm's length standard is an essential linchpin to make the whole thing work. You need a set of rules at the top of the game, and then you need almost like a referee, the arm's length standard that says you need to price according to what arm's length parties would have done under the same set of facts and circumstances. And one of the really nice things, I mean, we don't emphasize that enough, and but I kind of started there, um, I liked transfer pricing because it was about thought experiments where every set of facts and circumstances was different and you had to puzzle out what the, as close you could get to the right price on that. If we move to a formularious uh, apportionment system, that's a very blunt instrument. All those facts and circumstances are thrown out the window, says 50% of your sales are here. You owe me 50% of the tax base. Right. Right. It's such a blunt instrument that doesn't, doesn't take account of business and how business changes or and what competitive advantages, intangibles, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I, I, I feel like the arm's length principle, I agree, is not the problem. I think you're right in that, you know, the concept is, is so simple. What would you charge under unrelated situations and under similar circumstances if you were unrelated parties? And, and that's really the fundamental premise of the arm's length principle. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated your perspective. I really uh, found your article to be so spot on in this day and age. Thank and you. if anybody, um, if anybody wants to read the article, it, it's, it's available online and it's, it's a great article. It's simple. It's only five pages or something. Mm -hmm. So, all right. Indeed. Thank you so much, Matthew. Yes. Um, before we get uh, started, at least on the questions that, that we have for you as part of our fire uh, round that we do of, of questions we want to know, um, I think we have enough time at least before your Uber arrives. Does anybody have, have questions for Lorraine? You, your name and, and the company you work for. Uh, Jason for our, Kang from Zazzle. Um, thank you so much Hi, uh, for, your, for your talk. I, you mentioned guilty mm -hmm. as... Um, one of the mechanisms. I guess it's a two-part question. One, it seems to me principally that should address the worldwide piece somewhat. Yes. Um, but you mentioned also there, you mentioned three things, one of which was guilty and that be it might be illegal FBI. and not. Mm -hmm. Is guilty one of those things that you no. think might be illegal? Uh, no. Okay. Interestingly enough, I have a piece that just came out in Bloomberg Tax yesterday, Friday. And it is on global minimum tax. And uh, we've been seeing letters going back and forth between the U.S. Treasury and the OECD Secretariat with respect to this. But I think you might, if I'm sorry, Bob, it's almost like you were placed to lead me to the question. But the, the answer is, I think one of the things that may come out here is there is the opportunity to potentially set a floor for taxes. If we, remember I talked about the umbrella and the first crack effect, if we could get to worldwide, uh, I don't think that's gonna happen. I think with the US moving to territorial, it's not gonna happen. But if we could raise the bottom from zero to say 10%, I think that has a, a wonder, it's another first crack. In other words, it's almost instead of a, a ceiling at the residence rate, what about setting a minimum floor? What'll happen is countries will cluster under the floor, right? So if you set the floor at 10, they'll cluster under 10. If you set the floor at 8, they'll cluster under 8. Why not cluster under it? And then take that money in a developing country and use it to fund schools, right? Uh, put people back to work, renew infrastructure, so uh, I think there is some opportunity, and it is possible that the U.S. may be able to lead that way. Remember I said part of what happened was we dropped the rate from 35 to 21%, so a huge cut in the corporate income tax. We did away with the umbrella, but we're shoring up under the bottom with some of these other things. Um, some of the way they were structured 
affects exports and imports, which means they make the contravene. They'll be seen as an export subsidy, uh, a subsidy to intangible exports of the United States, and will contravene the WTO and will probably have to be taken out. Uh, but the others do offer some opportunity, and the letters that are going back do suggest, at least to me, that the I can't talk about this now, but the Pillar 1 proposals, I think, are a big mistake. But I think this opportunity for some, the Pillar 2 proposals, which are some plugging some of these things at mm -hmm. the bottom for developing countries in particular and the source countries, uh, and this minimum might be a way to, together with the original BEPS reforms, might be uh, second best. It's not going to be first best. First best, I don't think, is doable in my lifetime, although <laughs> lots of things I thought weren't doable in my lifetime have been. <laughs> I must tell you, I've been never say never. 45. I was thinking, I started working on my first herd of transfer pricing was um, 1974. So this is 45 years I've been doing this now. Hard to believe it. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Since we're here for our guests uh, this weekend, any, any other uh, questions for Lorraine before I head in to the fire round that's a lot of fun yeah go ahead and we're going to bring the mic around to you uh doug darling from uh, 3m kci um my question is of those major jurisdictions that don't um adhere to the arm's length standard brazil do you ever see them coming or have thoughts on coming into the fold? Well, can I interject real quick? You know, Brazil disagrees. They actually think that they're applying the arms thing oh, standard. Yeah. So just to they be do. clear on that. Yeah. <laughs> actually, and they're I, alone in that thought. They are alone in that thought. Yeah, well, yeah. but they're interesting enough. They're moving much more closer to the existing approach of the OECD. They're part of the inclusive framework. Not only are they part of it, they're one of the lead actors in the group of 124. But you probably don't know, but uh, in all the latest things that have been going on, on the digitalization and taxing of the digital economy, there are a group of 124 developing countries that are playing a leading role there, and they include China, right? So China, Brazil, um, India are all in that group. So there's not just only little small islands, but there are some very uh, big emerging markets that are in there. And one of the things that the UN, they're very active in the UN manual, less so in the OECD. So they're part, they're not OECD members, they're in the inclusive framework, right? But they are at the UN manual. And the UN transfer pricing manual is much more pro-Brazil. And they have what's called the sixth method there. And that sixth method actually is not too bad. We haven't talked much about that, but uh, in Brazil has the opportunity to play, and I think is playing a major behind-the-scenes role with a group of 24. Also, so interestingly enough, is Colombia. There's a woman there, Natalia Cruz, who I think is doing really amazing work on uh, thinking about significant economic presence, right, uh, for digital uh, permanent establishments, for example. So there's a lot of quite path-breaking work going on and trying to think out of the box, but I don't think we have to go down the rabbit hole of formulary apportionment. It's quite possible to keep the arm's length standard, strengthen it, and then even in a digital economy. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and thank
Thank you, Mimi. And thank you, Dr. Eden. Now, before Dr. Eden runs out, her schedule is very jam-packed. She was just able to fit in this discussion. It's time for what we want to know. That's right. Things just got real. We put a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat. That's you, Dr. Eden. And we shoot a rapid fire round of questions your way. Are you ready? I am ready. That is that is question one. Go Here we it. go. What's the biggest mistake you see multinationals make in terms of transfer pricing? Failure to document. Uh, compulsory documentation has to be done and has to be prepared, even if you don't have to give it out. But if you don't document, you leave yourself open to the tax authority coming after you. So failure to document is clearly number one. You have so many years of teaching experience. Are you more impressed by students who are extremely smart or extremely hardworking? Uh, that That is a tough one. Frankly, in transfer pricing, I think it's the extremely smart that make the difference because you got to be able to do the thought experiments out of the box. You can be hardworking and do the slogging, but you need that flash of insight to be able to basically throw the pieces up in the air and make sense of them. Does that make sense to me? So um, I want my students to be both smart and hardworking, and I insist on that. But the end of the day, the ones that really rise to the top, I think, didn't get there through hard work. They got there through being good economists who were able to understand the firms and make sense of the world around them. Even if they're lazy. Um, uh, none of them are lazy. None of them. None of them are lazy. I want to be very clear that is, that is not the case. That is me uh, going for the easy punchline. How uh, have you seen students change since you, since you started teaching? Oh, it's a big. I think there is a big change. One, they don't read as much. They really, unfortunately, the amount of things I can throw at them to read has declined considerably over time. I, I just think there's. Too many iPads and too much uh, other visual materials. They want more visual materials now, it seems to me. Uh, they'd rather listen to podcasts, I think, than read a, a big fat book with a lot of dense, dense text in it. Lazy people who listen to podcasts, that's my, that's my market. <laughs> I'm kidding. I gotta dig in. Smart, lazy people. Smart, lazy people who, who listen to podcasts. Uh, that's, that's where I get my bread and butter. People describe success in different ways. What's your definition? Uh, if you were to go to Chuck's and my website, you would see, uh, we say our, our website is making a difference through research, teaching, and service. Um, as that, we're both academics, and we have, there are three metrics on which we are graded annually, which is our contributions in research, our contributions in teaching, and our contributions in, in service. And I, I like to think that uh, I have made a difference in all three of those dimensions. So for me, the measure of success in life is were you able in the limited amount of time we are here on Earth to have made the world a little bit better place when when we leave it than when we than when we found it? Of course, and we very much appreciate your contribution to the world of transfer pricing and beyond. Thank you very much, Dr. Eden, for being with us today. It was wonderful to have you. And that's it from Scottsdale, folks, for today anyway. But there's always more from The Fiona Show. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And we'll deep dive into transfer pricing with you every week. And while you're at it, don't forget our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, hot off the press, where you'll hear about transfer pricing headlines and what they mean for you. This podcast was hosted, engineered, and edited by Matthew DeMello. He also writes the news segments. Is he amazing or what? Andrew Rue O'Donnell engineered and mixed the interview portion of this show and provided all AV vendor services while we were in Scottsdale. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our dynamic scripts. Catch you back here next week with more on our favorite topic and yours, transfer pricing. Transfer pricing.